and welcome to Sound of the Moment. I'm your host, Pat Cleaver, and this is the bi-weekly show featuring conversations with musicians about jazz, music, and more. I release new episodes every second Monday. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to listen to your podcasts to remain updated. If you want to be in touch with me, you can do that via Twitter at Pat Cleaver. You can email me at pat at soundofthemoment.com or you can go to Facebook and like the Sound of the Moment page. I intend to keep this show free to download and listen to in perpetuity, but if you do feel like supporting me and helping cover the costs of production and hosting, you can make monthly or one-off donations at patreon.com slash soundofthemoment. And many thanks to those of you who have already done that and who support me on an ongoing basis. This is episode number 28 for the 19th of November 2018. Drummer and bandleader Philippe Lem is my guest. His trio recently released an album called City Birds. Let's begin with a track from that. This one is called Emerge. Thank you. 
drummer Philip Lamb is my guest today on the show. Philip, uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Pat. I always like to begin by asking my guests to introduce themselves a bit, uh, tell people a bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from, what your background is, all that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, my name is Philippe Lem. I'm a, a drummer. I play drums. I'm from Amsterdam originally. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied here at the conservatory. I started playing drums when I was 16 and I graduated from the conservatory in 2009. I worked for a few years as a freelancer, mm-hmm. doing the, the freelance musician's life, playing yeah. every gig you can do and teaching a bit. And then in 2011, I moved to New York yeah. to do my master's at the Manhattan School of Music, where I had lessons with John Riley. Yeah. And after I graduated in 2013 from the Manhattan School, I went to India for five months to teach. It was a, a program set up by the Manhattan School of Music. Yeah. Um, so we taught there for five months. And after when I returned to New York, slowly the gig life started to work out and I started to work with more bands. And, uh, and I'm still there. I'm there for seven years and uh, still happy. Yeah, <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, maybe that, that idea of New York is, is something that we should uh, we should dig uh, a bit further into because was it always the plan I feel like it's it's kind of always something that's maybe in the back of the mind of European musicians of like hey New York is the place to go and I want to go to New York but that extra step of actually doing it is um, is maybe less common and the even further step of you went there to study and then decided to stay and live there um, was that always something that was in the back of your mind or well Perhaps the Amsterdam Conservatory has an exchange program with this particular school, with the Manhattan School, and yeah. so I was aware about the reputation that this school had. Mm-hmm. Um, when I graduated from the Conservatory in Amsterdam, I had a couple of bands that I worked with, and I was sort of making my money with music uh, pretty quickly after I graduated. But I always felt like if I keep doing the same things, I kind of know how the next five years are going to look, and mm-hmm. I was not happy with my playing per se. Okay. Um, maybe you're never completely happy with your playing, <laughs> but I felt like I know exactly how these bands will develop and they kind of do whatever they do, which was, which was fun, you know, and I learned a lot from it. Um, but I think New York was always in the back of my mind. There were some of the best musicians of the conservatory in Amsterdam or like the biggest talents that did exchange programs with that school or moved there to yeah. study. And uh, so it was an ambition without actually knowing what it was really about. It was more like, wow, this school sounds like a boot camp. Yeah, <laughs> like that's true. <laughs> they are going to push you really hard. And that always appealed to me. I was, there was definitely a point when I was obsessively practicing and obsessively treating music as a, as a sports almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was something appealing about going to a school that would really push you. And... I knew there were some scholarship programs at the time in the Netherlands that would make this possible because let's face it, money is the biggest hurdle to make it. It's so expensive. It's not just the tuition, which is ridiculous, but just the lifestyle there in general. Um, So I applied for these grants and I thought if I get this and if I get admitted at the conservatory there at the Manhattan school by the entrance exam, I should do it. Then it's sort of a sign from the universe. Like if those lights turn green, I should just go for it. And that's actually what happened. I did my audition 
which was was a very awkward audition. Like you, you, you write a list down of 10 songs and you can pick the first one that you play. Mm -hmm. And I played, I think I played Caravan as a first song and that was fine. I pretty much knew what I was going to do there. I was not going to leave it up to the moment too much, you know? <laughs> okay. And then one of the drum teachers said, oh, how about you play Nick's Dream as second tune? And I was sort of surprised because it's like, that's sort of the same vibe, right? Like, yeah. And then he was like, no, no, make something else out of it. So I, tried to look very confident and looked at the bass player. And he's like, yeah, you set something up. And he started playing this thing and I couldn't hear the one. Like, <laughs> like and in my head was like, dude, you don't hear the one. This is terrible. This is not the moment not to hear the one. Yeah. So I was just trying to not show, you know, the jury. Yeah. And I was just like, I think the one is here. And, and I just like started playing and it was not the one. So I had to stop because I was, and then John Riley just like loudly started to, to oh, clap the, the beat. And I was like, oh, this is so terrible. And it's like, this is come all the way to New York to play these like 15 minutes. And yeah. I, I can't hear the one. He was playing like a big three or something. And my yeah. mind was just too nervous probably to be. And um, it, turned all, it turned out all right. Like I had a lesson with John the next day and they were actually really happy with the audition. And mm -hmm. so when I got the, the letter that I was, uh, I was in or that I could, I could attend to school and I got news from the scholarship, which was the Huygen scholarship program in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I thought like I have to do this. Like yeah. now, when I'm when I'm in, I'm just like, why not? So I'm, yeah, I'm interested in that uh, that experience of like doing the audition and and having a bass player who clearly like. It, I don't know if there's any malice to be read into that. It sounds kind of obnoxious to me that you would play something that uh, is not immediately comprehensible to somebody who's doing an audition. Do you feel like there was it? I, I'm not going to ask you to throw somebody mm. under the bus like this, but it, it does speak to a phenomenon that I feel we don't experience so much in Europe, but that is maybe much more common in the scene over there, which is like this kind of like rite of passage of like, can this guy hang kind of thing? Like, is that something that mm. you've run into a bit over there? Or? No, I mean... In a certain scene, yes, I know what you're talking about. But in this particular case, I got to know the bass player better uh, after. His name is Sam Anning. We can, I can, can say that he's yeah. an amazing <laughs> bass player, Australian yeah. bass player. And uh, <clears throat> I don't think that he would do that on that moment to see if somebody can hang on an yeah. audition because there's already enough pressure on the moments, you know. Like the audition will change your life in a way if you yeah, move to a sure. different country. And so I honestly think that he thought this is a, this is very clear what I'm playing. Mm. And probably if I would hear it back, I would like be like, yeah, that is very clear. But at the moment, my brain was just preoccupied with probably yeah. a ton of other things. There is probably a certain scene that has a rite of passage. Um, probably some of the very specialized scenes, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to the really straight ahead or the trad jazz scene, or yeah. you're going to maybe certain R&B or gospel things, where, yeah, there can be this vibe, but you know, it's also up to you how much you allow that to, to kind no, of influence enough. your, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. your your mood, yeah. But so you um, you study in Manhattan school, like I feel like that's um, that's a thing that more people uh, uh, from around here and around the world typically have done. But it feels like it's common for people to go there, do their masters, and then come home to wherever they come from and like preach the good word of like the New York scene and all that stuff. And right. in your case, you, I mean, you're doing that because you're touring all around the world and, and, and doing that thing, but you did decide to make New York your home base. Um, how, how did that come about? Was it just like, Hey, 
it's working as long as it works let's just hang around or what kind of yeah i think it's as long as it works you want to stay um so i initially was there for two years to study and once you graduate you can extend your student visa with a year it's called Mm -hmm. opt yeah Uh, and in that year i went to india and did those things i could save up a bit of money i always tried to keep uh some savings money-wise so that i thought if i have no gigs I can at least pay my rent for a year. That was the idea. Okay. So I tried to be careful with money and to at least have the option if I liked it enough that I could stay there because I could see that there were a couple of, um, how do you say, checkpoints almost. When you mm-hmm. graduate, it's now time to make money, to play gigs, to teach, yeah. to whatever you need to do to be able to support yourself in the city. And then you saw the first checkpoint was people that were not assertive enough to play with a lot of people or to find gigs or create gig opportunities for themselves. And they had a lot of these opportunities in their home country. And at some point, the friction became like the discrepancy between what they could do in terms of good gigs and Mm -hmm. nice concert in their home country and the sort of more shitty beginning (laughs) gigs in in the city in New York. So they were like, yeah, I can't really, I don't want to invest this time into playing restaurant gigs or going to sessions, et cetera. So it became more appealing for them to move back Mm. or they just didn't make enough money, you know, at all. And I think that was the first year after graduation. So I could see a a bunch of people move back. Mm -hmm. The fact that I taught in India and saved up some money gave me a little bit more uh, oxygen to stay there. Yeah. And I would say after... After about two years after graduating, um, I had enough work. Um, So that slowly kind of, that became a stable factor. So I didn't have to worry about making enough money anymore. No, sure. And I feel like that's an attitude that um, that is, uh, and again, uh, stop me if I'm being too generalizing and I realize that I am, but that is an attitude (laughs) that you, you like encounter much more with, American and specifically New York musicians is the idea of the hustle and the idea of like, you've got to make the opportunities for yourself. Right, you and do. I think that is now spreading all over the place. And the idea of like the do it yourself, like everybody like has to create their own career rather than having something handed to them based on being a good saxophone player or whatever, you know? Exactly. Um, like that, I think that's something that is more in the com- like the consciousness now, but um I feel like that's always something that has been part of your uh, your background already. Like even when, because I knew you before you went to New York mm-hmm. and um, you were already like the bands that you were working with that you talked about earlier on uh, when you were still based here, you were already like pushing them and, and doing like making things happen and stuff. And was that something that just came naturally to you or? Um, I, I think so. I think I always had this, entrepreneurial side in me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'm good with people, uh, good with sort of keeping a group together, um, finding people that work well together and, and planning. I think I'm good with planning. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think everybody has the same thought when you have a band that you really like or people that you really like playing with, like, I want to show this music to as many people as possible. Yeah. Um, and the joy of, performing with those people, performing with that group or that music, yeah, that's why you play music, right? Not to do it in the practice room. Like you no, want to sure. share this and you want to kind of get the audience response and kind of uh, 
show what you what you what you have to offer. Mm-hmm. So I guess there was always a drive to kind of hustle for little gigs and those things. Like if we play here and then we can the next day we can play there. They they turn into little tours sometimes. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was something that came quite natural. Yeah, but was that like? Um, I guess we didn't really like. Did you did you experience that idea of? Oh wait, I'm taking a bit of a step back by moving to New York because you already were creating a network here, and then you kind of go there, and suddenly you have to play restaurant gigs and and sessions and stuff. Like, was was there anything kind of painful in that, or did you just embrace it? Um, no, there's something nice about um, lowering your expectations a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there, um, when the first time I went to New York, I went to New York a couple of times before I moved there just yeah. to check out the city. And one of the things that I noticed there was that all the musicians wanted to play all the time, regardless of if it was a a paid gig or if it was something that could lead to something else. The the, the act of playing itself was enough. Yeah. And I really fell in love with that attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, People do a lot of sessions at people's apartments or if you're in school, you can book a room in the school to play. Yeah. Um, So it was not so much about doing gigs that were less good it was just like playing more and that was that was the, the the real motivation like i met a lot of like-minded people if i would call them like hey can you play this afternoon should we do a session i have some new music let's try this out they were always down and that was not to have critique on the dutch scene i don't have any critique but i noticed the attitude here was that of course people were maybe more busy but the question was always like, is this for a gig? Is this for something? Is this for like, it was always, it had to be for something. It was like, <clears throat> I just want to play. And those things will lead eventually to, to, to gigs or to work or to collaborations or something. Yeah, sure. No, that, that's an interesting point because it, it's true that you kind of lose that. As, as soon as you exit that school kind of climate where everybody's in the building and therefore everybody's, well, hopefully everybody's trying to play as much as possible and make the most of the rooms and stuff. As soon as you get out of that, I feel like that attitude kind of goes away here. Like it suddenly becomes, where's my next paycheck coming from and how do I make sure that that Of course, you need to make money and you need to be, uh, you need to be on top of that as well. But for the musicians that are listening to this podcast, if you think about one of those nights where you felt really good about the music, just about like everything was gelling well, like the, the groove felt amazing. You were creative behind your instrument. That can happen anywhere. Like you host a jam session where you make 50 bucks and just that night is just amazing. I feel that's the real motivation for us to do these things. Those moments, that sensation, that f- feeling that you're really connected with the people on stage. Yeah. And it even, it even extends into like deepening the friendship with these people. Like you're going through something and celebrating music together, which is something very beautiful. And I feel that can happen in, in a session in somebody's house, that can happen in a, a restaurant gig uh, where people might not even notice it, but you notice it. And yeah, it's a very personal experience. And I guess that's that's the real that's the real deal. So course you need to make money so you're going for better gigs but sort of that magic that can happen anywhere no sure but then the the like i guess the the difference is maybe how much of a a, a positive reaction are you getting from an audience and stuff for like, sure that's the thing that i always struggle with in those circumstances i can be i find it very hard to like make 
great and engaging music when I'm faced with an inattentive audience. Absolutely, that, I agree. That is that is problematic. But I suppose, um, indeed, nobody got into making jazz and improvised music for the money. Like, if you did just turn around and do something yeah, else, that's <laughs> silly. Um, so, uh, like... It, it's refreshing to hear somebody like state it so blatantly as, as you just did, which is, Hey, you know, you can do it in somebody's living room and it can feel great. And that's yeah. what it needs to be about. Um, I, I would say that if, if the majority of the work that you're doing and you're pouring your heart and soul in it and you don't get a response from the audience, that is, that's painful, right? Mm-hmm. Like at some point that becomes annoying. So, um, there are, there are opportunities to play for on better stages where you will have an attentive audience but those things live side by side, I think. Yeah. Like you can do both. No, um, for sure. Yeah. For instance, to give you an example, I <clears throat> I play for this company in uh, New York uh, where I play weddings for weddings and corporate gigs, and I I usually do like one a week for them. Okay. And the audience listens to this music in a very different way. Yeah, it's not a quiet audience that you know claps <laughs> after solos yeah. and, and <laughs> says that they enjoyed the concert very much after the show and is very appreciative of that. These people dance mm-hmm. and for drums, it's nice to play loud and to play like so R&B and like hip hop and like uh, Motown songs. Sure, yeah. I enjoy that actually a lot. Mm-hmm. So I do have an attentive audience, but in a very different way. Yeah. So sometimes the response can be just, you see people dance to it. And yeah, no, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I know I, I do, I do quite a bit of stuff with the Lindy Hop scene here. And that's, that was like, you get that different sense of, Hey, this music is meant to be danced on, and people are dancing. Like, I wouldn't want to be playing in front of a like group of people just sitting on chairs and kind of yeah, quietly that music. listening. That doesn't. <laughs> that just feels wrong as well. Right. So it's it's true. The audience reaction you want is depending on what you're doing, I suppose. Uh, maybe we should like dive into more specifics because sure. um, you are uh, currently here on tour with your trio, um, which uh, you guys met. Seven years ago now, is that right? Yes, we yeah. met. Uh, yeah. Can, can you talk a bit about the, the the band and about how you guys started and how things have evolved over the, sure. the years? So they were classmates of mine. It's a piano player, Angelo Di Loretto, and a bassist, Jeff Koch. Yeah. So we were classmates, and like you do with your classmates, you play sessions or you end up in ensembles together. Mm-hmm. And we had a natural click. We played uh, a lot of free music, not free jazz, but we would book a room and play the three of us and somebody would start something and we would get into a vamp and then move that into a standard and then mm-hmm. morph into something else. It was very, very open. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the second year of our masters, we created an elective, which was we wanted to dig more into rhythm section playing. Um, and we had lessons, we, we wrote sort of the, the program, how we wanted to do that. And we had three teachers guiding us through that. It was John Riley, the drummer, Ted Rosenthal, the piano player and Jay Anderson, the bass player. Cool. So yeah. we would play for them, uh, sometimes free, sometimes compositions, and they would give us feedback. And they had uh, interesting exercises to to try out. Like, okay, how about you play a standard, but you you only show in the bridge what song you're playing. So you're going to be mm-hmm. very vague about the A sections. Yeah. Or you're only going to play Herbie songs. Or um, you're only going to... Um, if somebody's going to start and you're only going to play a certain part of a song... And then you move, before you finish it, you move into something else. Like they had all kinds of cool ideas. Yeah. Um, in 2015, so that was the year after we got back from India, we were part of this competition in Belgium, the B-Jazz competition that yeah. was called the Huilaert competition yeah, yeah, before. Yeah. 
And we won this competition and Angelo, the piano player, won the prize for best soloist. Mm -hmm. Attached to that prize were, it was a little bit of money and there were a couple of concerts, little mm -hmm. tour yeah. attached uh, to that prize. So that's really when things started to roll because it was like, okay, now we need to record a record. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we recorded our first record, did, uh, started touring from that moment on usually in in blocks like a couple of weeks here yeah and then maybe nothing for a couple of months and yeah a couple of weeks again and then in 2017 we started with the recording recording our second record yeah uh, yeah we're touring with that now currently yeah. so cool yeah we'll, we'll talk more in detail maybe about the, the the new record in a second but um i'm interested in um in a more general sense, the idea of the piano trio mm -hmm. um, and how you feel like you guys fit into that tradition. I mean, it's, I know from personal experience because I've played probably in more piano trios than any other <laughs> format. Right. Um, partly because I just love it and and it's like there's something kind of, obviously the trio idea is, is really appealing that, you know, you, um, there's space for interaction and at the same time it's, there's something intimate about it. But what like, it's such a difficult thing to approach given the like heavy history that there is to this format. Right. Um, is that something that, uh, that, uh, ever has been an issue to you guys or in terms of uh, it's, it's a terrible thing, but just in terms of booking gigs, mm -hmm. I know that there's many venues that'd be like, yeah, we don't need another piano trio. Or like what, what is it about the piano trio that is so appealing that you're willing to kind of go through all of that? Um, or is it maybe just the individuals that you're like, hey, these are two guys I want to play with. It doesn't matter what they play. Mm. It's the individuals and it's the music that comes out of it in the end. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There is a big history about piano trio and there are a lot of very good piano trios. Um, so definitely we'll, we will get that response from Booker sometimes like, mm. oh, another piano trio. Yeah. At the same time, um, I think every format has its pros and cons. Like the bigger the group, the harder it is to tour because it's just logistically, you know, like sure, yeah. just a tour with a, the size of a snarky puppy group, you know, you, <laughs> you can only play puppy. in very big <laughs> venues because you just, the buyout needs to be higher. You need to have more hotels, like the flights, everything is more expensive. Yeah. And then if you have more <laughs> uncommon uh, settings, like uh, a good friend of mine, a Dutch piano player in New York has a group, uh, Jorn Swart, he has a group called Malnoya, oh, yeah. which is uh, viola, a bass clarinet and piano, which is more uncommon. Yeah. But they're also running into the... You get the opposite reaction of, hey, what, we, we can't where's relate. the drums? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Or, or you guys sound like who, you know? Like, yeah, sure. Who do you sound like? So I think they all have pros and cons. I would say that the biggest advantage from something like piano is that like a piano trio is a small format but still with a very big sound yeah sure um like the piano is sort of the full orchestra like of course guitar you can have effects and have a louder but mm -hmm. piano yeah you have like the harmony and the melody at the same time and you have like a very full sound plus i think the it's a pleasant sound to listen to it's very accessible yeah um yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, no, sure. I'm I'm interested in the that very last thing that you said, the idea of a pleasant sound to listen to, because um that maybe is a good bridge into what the actual aesthetics of your music is. Mm -hmm. Like there's something uh you talk about how you guys started out with obviously in school and you played standards and and to a certain extent you still do, as far as I can tell. And um this 
like you say, pleasant. There's something really pleasant about what you guys do mm-hmm. and something, um, dare I say, consonant and something Absolutely. like... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that, that feels like it's, it's kind of a through line in your music. Uh, is that, uh, again, like where does that come from? Is that something that the three of you have in common? The idea of, hey, we want to make things that are somewhat conventionally pretty and, right. and like... Yeah. I, yes, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. We're not going for the most abstract, angular things. Um, we we are working on some things now. Some of the new material is more like uh, maybe Tigran inspired or uh, yeah. Um, that's I, I think honestly that's the music I enjoy listening to. Yeah. I enjoy listening to singer songwriters things that just feel good. Maybe that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's R and B or even pop music or more acoustic things. If the music feels good, it has a bigger chance that it will resonate with me. Yeah. It's sure. naturally, it works like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think that's something that your bandmates share? Like, is it, yes. is it a similar thing? You guys have um, obviously like a wealth of, of, of musicianship and background and stuff. Like, is it, you think that's something that you guys all have in common? I think we share that aesthetic. Yeah. And it's also, we, we are conscious about our audience. Mm-hmm. So, I wouldn't say we make music for our audience. We make music for ourselves and, um, and things that we like. Yeah. And we're, we try to show that, like, look, we thought this was really cool. What do you think about this? Yeah. Um, but it's maybe also, I've, I've been in a lot of modern jazz groups that play, uh, how would I say, it? overcomplicated music that misses the, that misses the, um, the thing that, that will, that will, resonate with an audience. Yeah. Um, so we are aware about that we're playing abstract music. There are no, there are no lyrics that tell you yeah, how to feel sure. or what the song is about. So it's already something that the audience has to put some more concentration in into just listening to notes, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, we tell stories about the songs to put them into context. And I got sort of turned off by overcomplicated music where the audience would just not get it. Yeah. It's like, why are we doing this? It's fun to play. I mean, as a musician, I enjoy it. And I yeah. enjoy going to, to concerts. And there are a lot of musicians that do that really well. Uh, but the, 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 to marry both of them, to play yeah. th- that music and to still reach an audience of not per se musicians, but that they would really get something out of the music is important for me. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, this isn't like a gotcha kind of question of like, not hey, at all. What, no, you know, no, it's true. Uh, like, it's interesting because I, I, I see that as a, there is certainly a downward spiral with the like, uh, like overly complicated abstraction that like you gradually isolate yourself. And there's a certain scene for that stuff and things. Right. But it's, um, yeah, it's it's something that struck me, like listening to you guys, listening to the new record and and, and um, all the stuff that I've seen from you guys, videos and stuff. Um, like for instance, that Tigran recorded a solo record, actually everything that Tigran did. Uh, yeah. He makes quite complicated music, rhythmically very, very sure. uh, ingenious. and But there's still this quality to it, melodically and harmonic, harmonically, that if you're a non-musician, you will just enjoy beautiful melodies and beautiful harmony and yeah. something something uh folkloric almost in it absolutely and yeah, uh yeah. and that's that's a that's the, a very beautiful combination i feel the same for Avishai cohen the bass player mm-hmm. he found a way to play sophisticated music still in a way that would or brian blades fellowship you yeah. know that's still 
resonates with a general audience. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, and there's also like a certain amount of virtuosity involved with all those musicians you just right. mentioned, which I feel helps. Like it's of interesting course. that there is a there's a demonstrative nature to that virtuosity that at the same time is in service of something that is conventionally pretty and and, and accessible, I suppose. Um yeah, let, let's talk about the record itself. Um, so it's, uh, as far as I could tell from the promo materials that I was looking at, um, that you guys were inspired by a painter and um, that painter also like made the, well, it's his work is featured on the on the record itself. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that? Um, sure. Um, his name is Greg Anthony Miller. Yeah. He's a New York painter. Um, I played this restaurant gig every couple of weeks in Harlem where I live. Mm -hmm. in a French restaurant and I had this wall where they had local artists put up their work. Mm -hmm. And every couple of weeks when I came by there, you know, set up my drums, I was like, man, this is, there's such a beautiful painting on the wall. I wonder if it's for sale. Mm -hmm. And I'm not that much of an art buyer usually because it's too expensive, <laughs> yeah. but Who it sort is? of came across my mind, like this would be so nice to have. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked the owner, like, is this for sale or is this just, and he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll bring you in touch with them. Um, with this painter yeah. and it happened to be that it was right before he got, uh, he's like, I'm in the pros of signing with this big gallery. So mm -hmm. at that moment, all of my work will be curated by them. So um, I can sell you this piece for, for not that much. Yeah. Um, um, and so I bought it from him, I met him, um, we stayed in touch and it was in my living room. And when we were working on the record, mm -hmm. um, I thought about like what the artwork had to be. And I saw that painting. I was like, I actually should ask him to do this. And then I was going over the music and I saw the, you know, the common thread that it had. And we decided to call it City Birds. Yeah. And uh, I asked him to do the artwork. And we are actually, we did these little character tests online. Like what kind of bird would you be? <laughs> okay. So you have these 20 questions, like, are you very assertive? Are you very lazy? Do you like blah, blah, and I, yeah. I don't know how true that is, but they paired that with a yeah. typical okay. bird and these birds came out for us. <laughs> so I, uh, I told this to this painter to crack and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll turn you guys into colorful birds. It's cool. fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, it's, it's really pretty. I mean, I, I, I like the aesthetic of it a lot and, uh, um, yeah, it's always interesting that I'm always interested in what people choose in terms of like the artwork for and in terms of the visual presentation of their mm -hmm. music. And it's always extra interesting if like one feeds the other in that way, um, I guess. Uh, the other thing, so I'd like to talk a bit about repertoire and about what what you actually guys you guys actually play on the mm -hmm. on the record. Um, well, first of all, it's not all original compositions. There's certain yeah. covers and. Um, specifically you cover a Simon Garfunkel tune and which I guess fits in with what you were talking about, about your enjoyment of pop music and stuff. And I guess it comes from that as well. You also cover a, a song from a TV show. We do. <laughs> um, which is funny because I didn't realize that's what you would, I hadn't read about it. I was just listening to the record and I was like, wait, I've heard this melody before, <laughs> but where and what? And and it said, it's the a song that is sung in Back Mirror. Yeah. Uh, can you can you speak a bit to, to, first of all, the choice of repertoire, second of all, that idea of like, there's another thing, which is that you've got a tune that's dedicated to Arya Stark from Absolutely. Game of Thrones. Like TV is suddenly a, a thing. Um, can you speak to that a bit? Right. Um, I think this started with, uh, we did a Kickstarter campaign for our first, uh, for our first record. Mm -hmm. 
And we got, we had this thing where people could pay, I think it was $150 and then we would record a video of their favorite song. Okay. And we got only our parents uh, enthusiastic for that option. So we <laughs> yeah. had three videos to, <laughs> to yeah. shoot and two of them, well, one was Scarborough Fair, yeah. which is uh, like a cover as well. It's a traditional melody, but most known by Simon and Garfunkel. Mm-hmm. And my mom requested Amsterdam's Parfum, which comes out of another TV show. It's gaat met de vijf poten. Yeah. And Jeff's dad took a meeting across the river from uh, blanking on his name right now. They will come back. Yeah. Um, so on the big tour in 2016 for that first record, we watched a lot of TV when we would come back from the show. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Springsteen, sorry, meeting yeah. across the river from Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And there were, I was, I'm a big fan of Game of Thrones um, and Angelo, not so much, but um, what we shared in common was Black Mirror. So we watched an episode after every gig. Okay, yeah. And that second episode uh, where the character sings that song, Anyone Who Knows What Love Is, which is written by Randy Newman and like a bunch of other people, but sang by Irma Thomas, like an old um, uh, doo-wop song from the 50s. Yeah. It's a really good composition. It's a really haunting almost. Mm -hmm. And we thought it would be really cool to make a version of that. Yeah. And then for Arya Stark, I mean, yeah. I wrote this song and I, I had to come up with a title. And I was like, wow, this is really reminding me of this sort of the aggression, still sort of <laughs> petiteness of like Aria, yeah. this sort of snarkiness. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, maybe it says that we watch too much TV. If <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, I feel like we have, we are in the, people keep using the word golden age of television. Oh, we're um, in the Netflix generation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Like the idea that pop culture has now become culture uh, is kind of, uh, crucial I think like there is no such thing as like a lower value especially when you're talking about Game of Thrones like Game of Thrones Man, is obviously, this is like such a high piece uh, of art right yeah absolutely um, uh, and I, Black I, Mirror in that same in that same for me as well like yeah, just the sure. ideas the way that they how aesthetically how it looks the music they use the acting like yeah. it's so well done no absolutely yeah. um, no so it, it's a, it's become a medium that has uh, value. So I don't think there's such a, obviously there's always going to be such a thing as too much TV, but um, if that's the kind of TV you're watching, I think you're fine. <laughs> right, and it might help even, you know, if people have a certain idea of putting the song into a context, which might be a TV show or a story that you tell them, uh, it helps if it's abstract music, mm-hmm. you know? Like, yeah. oh yeah, I'm going to think about Arya Stark when I listen to this, if yeah. you're a Game of Thrones, and it might yeah. paint a brighter picture for you. That's interesting. I suppose there might be a parallel there with the idea, like the way playing standards must have been for for people in the 50s, or maybe it's still the case in in America because standards are much more in the common consciousness, but the idea of taking something that people already relate to and then like piggybacking on that thing and being like, hey, you already have a connection to this thing. Um, Exactly. It's it's more than just a device to solo over, you know? It's like an actual song with lyrics with a certain... that if they came from a Broadway show or from, you know, musical theater or from anything else, they, they just played their take on it yeah. sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the audience already has a relationship to that material, exactly. which is interesting. Like you, so you can both play into that and against that. And it's quite cool. Um, so the, so how 
you like you you mentioned that you wrote uh, that that aria tune mm-hmm. in general can you speak a bit to your compositional process what does that look like especially with a trio format right um is there a certain amount of collaborative stuff is it everybody brings their own stuff how does that work i think everything is collaborative um Usually somebody comes with an idea like, hey, this is a song, uh, like, a, like a, a fundament I wrote for it. Or mm-hmm. Now I wrote something, for instance, that is not recorded yet, but I just layered it in logic. Like I played different parts on the piano and like mm-hmm. played some bass lines and then I send it to them. Um, usually we work without sheet music just because okay. we don't want to read on stage. Yeah. Um, out of an aesthetic thing and just because mm-hmm. it's better to memorize the music. Mm-hmm. So I send it to to Jeff and Angelo, and they will they will learn what I wrote, and then once we get together, we, we see what works to play it, you know, live. Yeah. We don't really write out complete arrangements and say like, this is the song, let's play it mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, so the compositional process is always a little bit different. Sometimes it's a concept. Sometimes it's like we're playing a new song from my from that I wrote, Caffeinated Souls, which is like pretty much. The, the fundament's pretty fixed. That's more like a Tigran thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes Angelo comes in with something or with an idea for uh, for to cover a song. Yeah, yeah, and then we'll we'll shape it. Yeah, we'll shape yeah. it together. But so, do you write at the piano? I mean, I'm always interested in like non-pianists and how they write, uh, right. especially as a drummer. That's an even even bigger step, I suppose. Like, how do you? Oh, I'm a terrible piano player. Yeah, like, I'm really all? bad. <laughs> so, how I would do it is, I mean. Usually I would, or I come up with a melody or with like a rhythmical concept. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe uh, I'm walking home and I hear this melody in my head. I whistle it into my phone yeah. and then I, uh, I try some, some harmony under it. And I'm like, you know, very rudimental, mm-hmm. but then I still have a clear idea how it's supposed to sound. Yeah. And then I, I bring it to the group and say like, what do you guys think of this? And then usually Angela goes like, oh, like, check this out. What if I play this here? And I'm like, yes, that's much better. Yeah. Piano <laughs> so, players always have a better chord. Yeah. They have um. a better chord or, or it's, or, or even a better voicing, you know, they're yeah, like, sure. if I voice it like this, everything makes sense. It's yeah. like, oh yeah, I couldn't, you know, my vocabulary is just not same for him. If he sends me something, uh, well, Angelo can play, can play some drums too, but usually I have to come up with some hip drum stuff or yeah. something that sort of makes sense for what he came up with and yeah sure yeah it's back and forth yeah it's funny i think i feel like the uh like the voice memo app on phones has become the composer's best friend nowadays like you're not, not the first yeah. person to respond with that um uh, it's it's quite cool because it means that we can now basically be composing um on the go anywhere at any moment like something comes to mind and you don't need to be pulling out a little piece of sheet music from your pocket and you know right um it's cool um the um, there's an, there's another thing about the record which is that you um, you have a collaboration with uh, spoken word artist a hip hop guy uh, Brain Power mm-hmm. can you speak a bit to that uh, how did that come about what was the process like working with him um, so one day I got just a whatsapp text message from him Okay. and he was like hey man I was listening to your music and I really like it and I would love to work together mm-hmm. and I knew Brain Power from my teen teens you know yeah. like he had like a couple of hits and he was yeah. he's doing this for a while yeah and i was like i would love to work together we'll do a tour in uh, in a couple of months and uh, we have a couple of days off during that tour and that's usually how we record like if we have days off on the tour we go into the studio yeah and we record something mm-hmm. and i was like how about we make some arrangements of some of your songs because that might be cool 
Yeah. So we prepared two arrangements, I think. <coughs> and that worked only so well because, uh, I don't know, it was not the, the perfect marriage. And we mm -hmm. started jamming also. We played some some free things and some beats. And then I think it was at 11 p.m. at night in the studio, I started playing this groove. And Jeff heard a different one, he told me later. And he <laughs> just started playing this bass line. It sort of worked very well. Yeah. And then Brainpower started just to do the spoken word thing over it. And while we were playing, we were just like, this is good. This feels really good. Yeah. <laughs> and then when we were, we had like a full take in like one, once playing it through. Wow. We overdubbed some glockenspiel. Yeah. And it became the track. It was cool. one of those moments. Yeah, like. yeah. But so um, I take it from that that was was the record all recorded during the same period of time, or no. did you guys two do? two blocks? Okay. So the first one I think was in April two thousand sixteen. Okay. We recorded maybe four songs at Wedgeview Studios. Yeah. Uh, and then the second part was in July of that year, or July two thousand seventeen. I might be wrong with the years. Yeah, know. sure. It was, <laughs> we played, we were at the North Sea Jazz Festival and at Pori Jazz and these things were a bit apart. We played yeah. some other things in Germany. We had a couple of days off and then we recorded at Power Sound with Paul Powers. Yeah. Three or four more songs <clears throat> and he mixed the record as well. And uh, so it was two different yeah. uh, blocks. Cool. And so how, like, did that at the time... Uh, at the time of recording, are you aware, okay, this is, the goal is to make a record, but we're not going to have enough material. We're going to need another session to record again. Or is it just, mm. let's see, we're, we're gathering stuff whenever we've got a moment to go into a studio and do a thing. I guess a little um, bit of both. I mean, yeah. of course, studios are expensive and you're going in the studio with the goal to record something that you, you can use for a record, not just yeah. to have like a good demo or something. Um, but at the same time, it was, yeah, if we record a couple of good, takes from this that means that we just need to find another day in the studio to record the rest yeah and because uh, when you're on the road you know you're the music is is well rehearsed and you yeah. know it and so it's like ideal mm -hmm. so um no that's interesting i mean the the reason i ask that is because it seems like nowadays um it's so common for people to basically be like, okay, we're going to make a record. This is what the 10 tracks are going to be on the record. This is the order in which they're going to be. And this <laughs> yeah. is what the artwork is going to be. And this is how we're going to release it on that label. And this guy's going to mix it. And then, okay, let's go to the studio, right? And you kind of have, you kind of decided everything in advance and you know right. what it's going to be. And then you basically just follow that plan and hopefully it works. And that, that maybe is a generalization. Like obviously not everybody does it that way, but that seems like a common experience in terms of making a record. Um, and it sounds like that's not what you guys did. You you just decided, hey, we we have this material from that session and we're going to make another session to gather more material and then when we've got enough material for a record, we make a record, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, well, you always think ahead, right? Like we have a record, so at some point you're going to record your next record. Mm -hmm. um, and when are you going to do that? <laughs> Everybody's busy, so you have to find time. Yeah. So if we're on the road, I'm pretty sure that they're not doing other gigs on their days off. Fair enough. So I do have their <laughs> clear schedule already. Yeah. Uh, studios in the Netherlands are a little bit cheaper than if I would record in New York. So yeah. there's that advantage. Plus like, you know, working with somebody like Paul Power, you know, if you would go to the equivalent in New York, you, you, you're bankrupt after yeah. that. Yeah, no, for sure. Plus he has such a beautiful piano and he's really nice to work with. And, and other guys at Wedgeview as well. Um, mm -hmm. So there's that advantage, but I guess you always plan ahead. Mm -hmm. We didn't plan that far ahead with the artwork uh, or with the order of the songs, but... Yeah. 
um, you do plan ahead in terms of if we could release the record then, that means that ideally the month after that we do a release tour. Yeah. So you have the momentum of people writing about the record, hopefully, mm. or you can write on a social media, we have a record out, now we're going on the road so people can buy it. Yeah. Um, I think that is the best uh, way to think ahead, that there is a year, you take a year to book these gigs, you know? It's, um, yeah. I, mean, I started no, December last year to book the shows for October now. Yeah, yeah, so yeah sure. there's a long time to do that, and I think that's more of the... Yeah. planning ahead process in terms of uh, release and then follow it up with a tour. Sure, yeah. Um, obviously, yeah, the, so I'm afraid this podcast is going to be releasing in about a month from now. So uh, we will have, I mean, the European cities we will have missed, but do you want to speak a bit about that tour, like specifically um, right. what it's like um, for you guys getting on the road? How how does it, um, and specifically what shows you guys have been doing or you're going to be doing, et cetera? Right, so we will be uh, in. We were in the Netherlands for about eight days, mm-hmm. nine days. Then we'll do Belgium and Germany, uh, the UK and Scotland, yeah. or England and Scotland. And this is the longest stretch that we have done. Uh, yeah. It's like a month, yeah. which um, yeah, we played at some beautiful venues. Like we played at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, which yeah. is like, I mean, I was afraid for the sound. Uh, for drums because it's not a room that's built for drums but no, it sounded sure. very nice like yeah. um and this music works well in that room it's not too uh, it's not too loud and um mm-hmm. so that was beautiful like I've, I've never played there we're going to play or well by the time this gets released we already yeah. played but we're going to play at ronnie scott's in london which yeah. is very uh um, it's exciting it's very exciting it's a it's a very uh, famous place and it has such a um so many people played there before, so that's it's exciting. Yeah, and uh, there are a lot of plays I've never played. Yeah, uh, so it's going to be uh, unknowns. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting to play for a new audience, also. Sure, but so you obviously you say you worked, you were working a year ago to plan this right. um, this uh, tour. So I take it that although maybe you're just reaping the fruits of that planning, but presumably you've planned more stuff um, at this point. Like, yeah. is there stuff that people can look forward to further than uh, down the road than November? What are Absolutely. you working on right well, now? In December, we're going to do a couple of shows in the East Coast in the States. So that's like Philadelphia, Baltimore. Okay. Uh, in January, we do some things in Florida and, um, and uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And then March, we have some things planned in Buffalo. So upstate New York, Buffalo. Yeah. Uh, Toronto in Canada, Waterloo uh, hmm. in Canada, and Rochester, yeah. and some things in New York as well. So I think the whole itinerary will be on our, on our yeah, Facebook of course. page. There'll, and there'll yeah, be links yeah. to that stuff so people can go and find it. Um, yeah, we're sort of running out of time here. Uh, is there any other stuff that you're up to that you want to mention, like work as a sideman, any other projects uh, real quick? that? Um, yeah, most of, my side, most of my work is working as a drummer, as a sideman, so... Sure. Uh, I recently started playing with uh, Grace Kelly. She's a like, oh, a, yeah, sure. like a saxophone player, um, uh, more on the smooth jazz side yeah. of things. But uh, it's so I play more SPD things there, and it's yeah, like, yeah. and I'm playing with this Afrobeat band called Ajoyo, mm-hmm. which I think we're gonna play a track from also. Yeah, we'll end the show with that. Yeah, that's a really fantastic band with the singer uh, Sarah Elizabeth Charles. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the music. I'm. It's, it's really fun to play this. It's like the, the perfect combination of music where people can dance to, but it's also there are a lot of solos and improvisation yeah. opportunities. Um, 
when I'm back in New York on November 3rd, I'm leaving the next week for a tour in Canada with a Canadian piano player, John Stach. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know John Stach, like he has 12 records out under his own name. He's uh, like worked with amazing musicians. So like just listening to his music is very, very inspiring. And uh, yeah. so yeah, most of my work is working as a sideman. Sure. And then a couple of times a year, I can take the trio on the road and, yeah. uh, and do our thing. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, finally, uh, before I let you get out of here, I always like to ask my guests uh, if there's something they would like to recommend that the audience check out. It can be just about anything. It can be a mm. record, a movie, a book, and anything you think deserves some attention. All right. Then I would say the last week I've been listening a lot to this singer-songwriter called Gabriel Kahane. Okay. Uh, I think the record is called Book of Travels. Yeah. Uh, beautiful. Just Wow. I think it's on Spotify yeah, or buy the record online. Yeah, it's very, sure. very nice. It's just him playing piano and singing. Hmm. Both uh, the lyrics and the music, it's, it's very, everything is well done. And it shows so much good taste. Everything yeah. is very pretty. And then maybe a movie I saw recently is Aurora Borealis, a Hungarian movie. Mm-hmm. Um, takes place in the Second World War uh, in Hungary. Um, Gorgeous, beautiful acting, beautiful storyline, and those two things I would recommend. Yeah, sure. There will be links to that, um, as well as links to all of your stuff uh, on uh, soundmoment.com. Philip, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me, Pat. That was Philip Lamb. There are links to his website in the show notes at soundthemoment.com where you'll find his upcoming tour dates, and uh, you will also be able to purchase his music over there. Many thanks to my fellow members of Catro for providing the intro and outro music. Please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts and leave a favorable review or rating in iTunes. That really helps me quite a lot. Please tell a friend if you know anybody who is interested in listening to jazz musicians talk to each other. Uh, Word of mouth really is a great way for me to uh, expand my listenership. Go to patreon.com slash sound of the moment if you'd like to make a donation to help me keep the show up and running. Even the smallest amount is incredibly helpful. And loads of thanks to those of you who already do that. You can reach me on Twitter at Pat Cleaver, on Facebook via the Sound of the Moment page, and by email at pat at soundofthemoment.com. I'm going to end the show today with a track from the band Ajoyo, which Philippe mentioned as one of the projects that features him as a sideman the tune is called war chant thank you so much for listening i'll be back in two weeks with another episode of sound of the moment